Hey there, Mike Stelzner coming to you with a fascinating update you might not be familiar with. Did you know that Social Media Examiner can deliver all the marketing, training, news, and trends, insights that you need into your inbox three days a week when you sign up for our newsletter and it's completely free? Simply visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates and take your marketing to the next level. Welcome to the Crypto Business Podcast, helping you navigate the frontier of crypto. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Crypto Business Podcast, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for innovative thinkers who want to know what works in the world of Web3. Today, we're going to be joined by Lindsay Mack, and we're going to explore how brands can integrate with Web3 and the metaverse. By the way, I'm at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter. And if you're new to this podcast, be sure to follow this show so you don't miss any of our future content. Let's transition over to this week's interview with Lindsay Mack. Helping you to simplify your crypto journey. Here is this week's expert guide. Today, I am very excited to be joined by Lindsay Mack. She is a digital futurist and co-founder and CEO of Sixth Wall, a company that explores the intersection between Web3 and entertainment. She's also the former global head of technology and innovation at Anheuser-Busch. Lindsay, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. Today, Lindsay and I are going to explore how brands can integrate with Web3. But before we go there... I would love to hear a little bit of your story. Start wherever you want to start. How the heck did you get into Web3, NFTs, crypto, all that fun stuff? Tell us your story. I can't wait to hear it. Sure. Yeah, look, I mean, I've, I've always been a little bit of a, a tech nerd, certainly an internet nerd. I wrote a thesis on, on hacktivism in universities. So this, this goes back a long way and sort of put my made some money making MySpace pages for people, um, you know, in university. But really what excited me about the early internet was its ability to bring people together and for people to mobilize and find their people and find communities and build communities. And so when I was graduating, you know, after having thought a lot about the internet, I wondered what the heck am I going to do with this? And I went and, um, you know, went off to PR school to put a business writing cap sort of thing on my great analytical and writing skills. So that was the idea at the time. And it was then that Facebook pages were just emerging. So the dawn of Web 2, if you will. So like 2007, 2008, something like that. Does that sound about right? Yeah, 2007, 2006, 7. That sounds right. And I was really excited about some of the new things that were happening in Web 2 that just made the internet easier to use. I felt like while there were some great sub-communities and cultures on the internet, and you know, the internet's a gateway to every subculture you could ever you know, shake a stick at, which is really cool, it was really hard to be on the internet. If you wanted to create things, you had to really want to create stuff in Web 1 and in, in early internet. And so, you know, I saw, you know, Flickr and Blogger and YouTube and Facebook and all these, you know, Twitter, all these different platforms emerging that just made it so simple and easy to create stuff and find your people on the internet. I was super excited about what the possibility to do some really cool things there and, and for people to build and find one another would be. And so, you know, as I was graduating PR school, uh, Facebook pages had just emerged. And I kind of thought, well, this is a really interesting way for people to for the first time, be able to talk back and at big brands. 
And so I had this like really green and really, you know, sort of naive at the time idea that, uh, you know, that, that people were going to be able to interact and interface much uh, more democratically with uh, with big brands. You know, of course, as, as things kind of carry on here, that didn't happen. The business model of Web2 is sort of inherently broken and sort of incentivized brands and big platforms to take a lot of data from from people. And, you know, the internet just wasn't as exciting as I, I had hoped. So I kind of went into these. I worked in, um, you know, bringing digital technologies, social technologies global for a long time, you know, traveled the world over 30 Five, 40 countries, working with Fortune 500s, with large institutions and, uh, and other really cool global charities that you'd recognize and, um, you know, helping them understand how technology was moving and how their businesses were, was going to be shaped by, uh, were going to be shaped by technology. And then I had these like dark years where as I started to realize what was going on with Web2, I was like, damn, I don't, I don't love this anymore. I felt pretty disappointed by what I saw happening and uh, disillusioned by the internet a lot. I kept doing some tech things, but started thinking a lot more about some of the some of the things I'd heard about Bitcoin and Ethereum, where I guess 2011, I was working a job and was introduced to uh, to Bitcoin, you know, kind of looked around the room and thought, you know, by who I'd been introduced to, to it by and thought, well, like, these just aren't my cats. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this is like my my field, so to speak. And so I followed it along because I thought it was a really neat technology, but didn't dive in too deeply, was curious about what was going on with Ethereum. And, you know, I, I kind of started to see a lot of the early ethos of, of crypto and, and Bitcoin as, as perhaps a solution to some of the more challenging and sort of fraught things I was experiencing in the internet. And then, you know, I went on and became a global head of tech and innovation at AB InBev. And like I said, been following crypto and whatnot and started to start see some trends emerging that led me to believe we were about to have this very explosive moment where the world was perhaps really ready for, and crypto was ready for its first real great consumer use case. And that became really NFTs. And so, you know, kind of rewinding 2020, I had written a thesis on Web3, Metaverse, NFTs, and crypto for brands at AB. And in early 2021, launched Stella Artois into the metaverse with a in a partnership with Zed Run, which is a crypto horse racing game where people can buy, sell, trade, and own digital horses on the internet. Which may be you're scratching your head, going, "What the heck? You know, where's the synergy there?" Which we can get into in a minute. But launched AV, AV and Bev, and like what well, launched Stella Artois into the metaverse, and uh, it was you know first CPG brand in the metaverse, still probably. One of the few uh, first beer brand in the metaverse, you know, just started uh, started having a lot of fun in in that moment. You know, kind of met a lot of really interesting characters and people. And Mila Mila Kunis had just launched Stoner Cats. This again, 2021, which was uh, an incredibly innovative and novel way to combine entertainment and Web three and enter- entertainment and, and NFTs. We got connected, started chatting, and just decided that, you know, got got on with her and, and Morgan Beller and, and Maria Bajois and Lisa Sterbikov. We decided that we wanted to go hard at uh, Web3 and entertainment, and the rest is sort of history. So, you know, left AB and have been looking at ways to, you know, look at the end-to-end creation of a piece of film and television from ideation to red carpet and look at, like, tiny, tiny places where we can kick over a couple dominoes, but also ways we can make really seismic shifts in the way that Entertainment is created, consumed, enjoyed, um, and ultimately hoping to bring creators closer to people who love film and TV and, and vice versa. Those that are listening to the podcast behind uh, Lindsay is a animation, which I'm assuming is the Zed Run horses, right? That you've got going on back there. That's it. So bring us up to the present, the sixth wall. What is that exactly? It sounds like you might have hinted at that just a minute ago, but tell us a little bit more about that. Mila had launched Stoner Cats with Morgan Beller. 
Mario Bajois, Lisa Stribikov, Ashton Kutcher, and really had been wildly courageous and, uh, and, and innovative about pushing forward the way that entertainment was going to be created and the way that people could be part of that process. And so I think, you know, that gave sort of early blueprints and primitives that sort of validated that entertainment indeed was going to be an industry that was was able to be shifted and, and played with, you know, in this new way. They'd all fallen in love with the idea of merging entertainment and technology, and specifically Web3. And so, you know, we, we got to chatting and there's just like a whole bunch of other really interesting IP and, and novel ideas. Mila has a production company with Lisa Sterbikov called Orchard Farm Productions, where they typically are producing traditional film and television. And so we formed a new company called Sixth Wall to, you know, basically look at every bit of the creation process of a piece of film and TV and figure out all these different ways where we could bring consumers closer to creators and creators closer to consumers and allow consumers to be creators. Because, of course, you know, everybody is a creative uh, in the end. So that's what we're working on now. We launched another project uh, called The Gimmicks with Toonstar, which are a Web3 animation studio. The Gimmicks is like a WWE meets South Park animation built it on the Solana blockchain. Just had some different theses that we wanted to test out there and some different ways of approaching things. So launched that a couple months ago. And it's been really well received as well. We're uh, almost at episode 20. So we committed to 20 episodes up front. They're being released weekly. It's a comedy. And people who own Gimmicks which are sort of the NFTs that we gave away at the beginning of the show, can vote weekly on the outcome of the series or the show, and they influence effectively the next episode. When they do that, so when they when they cast their vote, they're also issued a new token, which is called the Dick Punch, uh, D-I-C. Take your mind out of the gutter. It stands for, for Decentralized Inclusive Community. You know, it's been really wild to see what's happened there because we've had like a lot of real, you know, world first where, you know, typically when people mint an NFT, they mint it. So maybe, especially if they're new, they maybe mint it and they disappear from that blockchain and they don't go back to it until they want to sell that thing or until they want to buy something else. And so if you've gone through this learning process to, to actually mint your first token, you kind of have to go through a relearning process to sell it, to trade it, or to buy something else that you want to buy in the future. And the gap there can be, you know, in terms of time, can be, can be kind of long. And what's happening with the gimmicks is that people are going back every single day to vote on the gimmicks show, but also to dick punch one another. So the community are using the dick punch tokens as sort of like an upvote or a like on the blockchain, but it's an on-chain action. So it takes, you know, quite a few seconds to actually process. People actually have to pay to process it. It's, it's, it's low because it's Solana. But what's happening is that like if somebody who owns a gimmick creates a backstory, so you can attach, you can connect your NFT to the website and create a backstory for your character, your gimmick. And if people, you know, in the community like that story, what they'll do is they'll send you a bunch of dick punches. So kind of validating and upvoting and liking your uh, your backstory. Or if you do something in the community or on one of the podcasts or on a Twitter space or something like that, they're sending each other dick punches. And so right now there's a race to 1 million dick punches. Again, getting pretty close there. You know, the community is just having a lot of fun communicating with each other in this way. And so what we did when we saw that sort of behavior happen, we built in a messaging capability where it wasn't just like a like or a poke anymore. It was actually more like a comment where you can send your dick punch, but actually craft a message underneath it. And that message is immutable. It's on the blockchain. So that's, it's there forever. 
And so you can actually tell people what you are dick punching them for. So, you know, like a lot of really interesting primitives for how on-chain engagement can look. And, you know, something we'll probably look back at and laugh a bit, but but never been done before. And, uh, and people are having a lot of fun with it. Very cool. Lindsay, one of the questions I've got for you is there's plenty of businesses and brands listening right now who are skeptical about getting involved with NFTs in the metaverse. What do you want to say? Why should they maybe consider looking into it? What's your perspective on that? Yeah, look, I caught a funny post, I guess, like an attention-seeking post that seemed to catch fire a little bit on on LinkedIn from some ad guy, right? Like ad agency guy being like, if, you know, if, if you think that the future is the metaverse is irresponsible, blah, blah, like, and, and it's not going to happen. And, you know, sort of saying it's silly and ridiculous. And it just reminds me of so many other eras where technology was new and novel and people who were boring and sort of invested in convention had no ability to have foresight and creativity and think about where things are going and sort of missed the boat. And so there's four main times where I can kind of remember in recent history-ish that this has happened. One was the internet itself, right? Brands, big companies were like, ah, we don't need this dot-com. We don't need a dot-com. We don't need effectively virtual real estate, right? We don't need it. And then, you know, when people realized that actually everybody needs a dot-com, people raced out and paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, in some cases, millions of dollars for their dot-com of their business, because we realized that the dot-com, your website, was one of the most valuable pieces of real estate that you could have as a brand, right? So, so there was that skepticism and like, who's laughing now? There was this era in email where people were trying to sell enterprise email and enterprises were like, that's ridiculous. Why would our people need emails? They have telephones and they have fax machines and they have whatever other ways they communicated, maybe carrier pigeon. I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, so Charlie came back, we don't need email. And so eventually that turned into, okay, well, we'll get one email address for the department. And so you'd have like marketing at brand contact at, yeah, <laughs> you know, or like, you know, PR department at brand.com sales guys at brand.com, whatever it was. And of course now, like how many email addresses do you have, Michael? Like personal. A lot. Yeah. yeah, a lot. I've got like maybe five, six. And most people I think have five or six email addresses. So that was silly and and was probably ridiculous to be skeptical of. Another one is, is, is e-commerce, right? Where people are like, well, we've got these brick and mortar stores. Why the hell would we need e-commerce? Seems like a huge expense. What a pain in the butt. And of course, there was like lots of different parts of e-commerce that was a huge pain in the butt, right? Solving online payments, solving shipping, solving security, like lots of different parts of it weren't ready on day one for prime time. But God, e-commerce, like who has not bought something on the internet in the past two years, right? We've been stuck in our homes and the only thing that has survived is, is for sure e-commerce did really, really well. And so, you know, that is now a whole vertical inside large companies. It's either tucked inside the marketing department or they pop it out and make it like a whole sales, you know, vertical inside the company. And, and, and it exists as a full-time practice and discipline and is, you know, it's been an amazing thing for brands. And then, and then the last one is social media, right? Where I remember early days, like 2007, 2008, talking to brands about social media. And they'd be like, again, this is ridiculous. Who's going to share pictures on the internet? Who's going to share videos on the internet? Who's going to tell stories and talk <laughs> to their on the internet? It's so dumb. Great. Where are we now? Facebook's a trillion dollar company. Twitter has done pretty well, I'd say. You know, YouTube. LinkedIn, yeah. My friends who have kids, they, they're like they're like 13-year-olds. They don't even watch TV anymore. It's just YouTube, right? So obviously social media worked and did really well. And I think about the people right now being skeptical about the metaverse and kind of going like, well, they're probably the same folks who didn't have jobs for very long after social media became very popular and social you know, departments existed. And then, you know, now it's just embedded in marketing. And I think that's a really important thing for people to understand about where things are going to go, right? 
the metaverse is not fully formed. Web3 is not fully formed. It is nascent. It's early. And so that means that just like e-commerce, it, it didn't, doesn't look today how e-commerce did 10 or 15 years ago. Right? You need to give technologies some time to percolate, some technologies to sort of evolve around one another. But the primitives and the blueprints are there. It's happening. And there's just too many signs. I think for brands, especially of the signs, is that Facebook is taking it so seriously, they rebranded themselves to Meta. Right. So if one of the largest Internet companies and probably one of the largest marketing spends for large corporates, changing their name to Meta isn't some sort of signifier that this could be more than just a little phase that I don't really know. I don't really know what is. So is it perfectly? Are we perfectly formed? Are we all the way there? No, we're, we're not. But the blueprints are being laid. We are certainly well on a path to what will become a metaverse and it would be it would be crazy not to not to consider it because it's the future state of the internet which is the most ubiquitous technology that we have love that and then let's not forget jack dorsey founder of twitter changing the company other company that he founded to block right you know we go. used to be called square right so obviously these people that are early innovators in the world of web 2 are clearly seeing the path to Web3. There's a lot of marketers right now who are like, okay, metaverse, NFTs, this Web3 umbrella sounds confusing and complicated. Where do we start? Like, what do they need to be thinking about? Like, I would imagine you're talking to brands all the time that are curious, but have no idea what in the world they ought to be grappling with or what they need to be thinking about before they jump into this quote unquote, new world. So what, what, what do you want to say to people about how they need to think before they jump? I think the most important thing is to come at this with, uh, with curiosity and an open mind. Right now, things are being built, which makes you, you know, by entering courageous, brave, and a bit of a pioneer. We don't have all the answers and there's going to be some failure and that's really just learning. And then there's going to be some wild runaway successes that are, you know, incredible and will win you can lions and all of those, you know, great, amazing things you ever dream of as a marketer and as a big brand. But you will need a different skill set, right? So you will need crypto natives, people who genuinely understand and get crypto and kind of work in that space and play it all day long. You'll need people who know how to think in 3D because we're talking about a spatial internet, something that's more immersive and exciting and therefore also gamers, right? So like if you've got kids and you've been giving them heck for, for playing video games too much and too long, that'll be some of the most employable people in the future. And you should maybe think about bringing them right into your department for a summer internship. You know, like these are the kind of characters that you're going to want on your team. And then the other part of me, I think, would sort of say that, you know, while so much of this sounds like it could be intimidating and scary and new, it's also super exciting and requires some of your steady hand as an old hat marketer and somebody who's been at a brand a long time. So, you know, if we think that the metaverse will parallel reality, then so much of what you practice as a marketer today will also be paralleled in that in that world. And so the metaverse is the future of sponsorships, advertisements, licensing, direct-to-consumer, e-commerce, experiential, all of these things that, you know, marketers know really well. And so I think, you know, kind of like when social media first emerged, it was an opportunity for older marketers who were open-minded to partner with young people who understood community on the internet and understood social. This is an incredible opportunity, again, for like probably the people who ushered in social to hold hands with, you know, some younger folks who need some of the wisdom and steady hand behavior of older marketers, but also we really need youth and energy and, and sort of uh, to rejuvenate some of these departments. And what I kind of think is going to happen 
it'll be really similar to what happened with social, which, you know, for most people listening probably isn't such a such a bygone error that we we've forgotten it. But what happened with early days socials, people were like, we don't need it. And then what happened was like a, an intern or a young person was told to like start a Twitter handle or a Facebook page and like control it. Go ahead, go nuts, right? And then they had some little wins and victories because it was taking off. And so people started to pay attention. And so what happened was budget was allocated for small, small social teams, right? And this is what you had inside companies. You had like the marketing group who were, you know, the sophisticated people in the room. And then you had these weird kids in the corner who were the social media team, right? And they they were they were small, they were lean, and they were doing that weird Facebook stuff and whatever. And then what happened as time went on is social became a huge integrated part of how we use the internet and a huge part of how we market to people and how we enjoy our time online that the social team just became part of the marketing team and every marketer who was worth their weight understood how to do social in some capacity and how to, you know, account for social, it just became part of your greater marketing plan. And so I think this goes a similar way where you're going to get, you know, hire some degenerate on the internet who plays video games too much, who nails something so well that it surprises you for your metaverse strategy. And then you go, oh my God, we got to take this seriously. And then you can go get budget and you'll have a small little meta team or meta lab, whatever you maybe end up calling it. And then, you know, 10 years from now, it would just be marketing. It'd just be sales. It'll just be every part of your business. And I think that's the most interesting thing about metaverse is that it's not just going to be marketing. It's not just going to be sales. It will be HR. It'll be, you know, it'll be every part of every, every part of your business because of how immersive and just sort of big the shift is going to be and all the different ways it can you know, do its thing in, um, in, in reality, but also in your organization. Uh, one of the things we talked about when we met before when we were preparing for this interview was this concept of an upside down model. I don't know if that rings any bells, but I think you had implied that there are some things that marketers need to rethink when it comes to Web3 and the metaverse. Does that ring any bells to you at all? Like what's in it for the community? How can you co-create that kind of stuff? So in addition to all, you know, all of these things like, you know, who you bring in and all these skill sets and, and whatnot, there's a whole new set of ethos and values, you know, being applied in, in the Web3 era. Right. I think there's a lot of, I think consumers, people, internet users are skeptical about a lot of what's gone on in the past number of years with technology. They're frustrated. You hear like a lot of people quitting Facebook and you're doing all of these things. And if you think about the model of Web2, it's, it's quite broken, right? Like here we are as individuals, here we are as creators, right? I create so much stuff and I put it on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, and I'm not, you know, not just trying to pick on, on Facebook, but basically the model of Web2 is you get people in the world to create all this awesome stuff and put it on the internet. And then you sell the time that they spend on the, this platform, sharing and consuming content that they've made with friends. You, you sell that space to advertisers. And then advertisers pay Facebook, for example, a lot of, a lot of money, and they get to put their advertisements in front of people's eyes. And so the people who actually created all the value there, not all of it, because, you know, Facebook helps, of course, aggregate it and whatnot, and sort of helps you splice it up to an advertiser so they can be really choosy about who they want to see their things. And that's a service. And it's an amazing service. It's been very helpful for a lot of advertisers. But you also have this sort of gap where the people who created like at least 50% of that value, and I would argue a lot more, the whole reason people show up on to these social platforms to consume things is because you know they want to see what their friends are doing. They want to see pictures that artists have created or they follow artists, they follow sculptors, they follow photographers, they follow travelers, like whatever. And the people who've put all of this content there, which is the reason people are showing up making zero dollars. 
or they make a very, very small amount of money because the take rate on the social platforms is so large. And so Web3 is, I think, recognizing some of the inefficiencies there in how people are rewarded for creating things. And it's trying to find ways to give back to the creators. So imagine being rewarded, like it doesn't even matter if you're a creator or not, like it doesn't matter if you're a photographer or if you're just like somebody who scrolls Facebook all day long. Imagine being rewarded in some sort of token for every, that, that, that had inherent value that you could sell for USD or sterling or whatever you need for wherever you live, or you could keep as a digital token. Imagine being rewarded for and, and financially incentivized for every minute you had spent on Facebook, every like you had committed to Facebook, every comment, every share, all of those sorts of things, the picture you posted. And so, yes, it would mean that there would be less of a take at Facebook's side. You know, some of the advertising money would go to the consumers, but what an interesting way to incentivize people if you're tossing some of that money back to the actual creators in the community who are then incentivized to create more on your platform because they're going to get more rewarded for it. You know, I think of it as like today we pay an influencer $200 to shill our product and do a couple posts on Instagram or whatever it is, or maybe it's $1,000 or $5,000, depending on how influential they are. And then, you know, they kind of go through the laborious task of creating the, the, the two posts you compensated them for. And then they don't really care, to be honest, if you they don't care if your product sells or not, they're not talking about it to their friends. Imagine if they actually owned a part of the, your early business, right? In some sort of tokenized model where they were able to share it in the upside of, of your success. It was shared in joint upside. That would mean that, you know, rather than just kind of walk away from it after I promote it, I'd be like, you know, Michael, this is going to be really interesting. You should try this thing. I'm like super invested. You kind of, you know, are- Become an evangelist. You become a true evangelist. Proper evangelist. And so I personally believe that a lot of the brands of the future, so the Airbnbs, the Ubers, the the Facebooks of, of Web2, I think who those people are of Web3 will be decentralized brands, community-owned brands. And you start to see some of what that could look like in things like Artifact, which was acquired by- Nike already, but they have loads of community members who are going to, you know, or who are really still enjoying being part of that community and are owning something of value in that community. Board Ape Yacht Club, really interesting example of a community that's, you know, enjoyed the success of the founding team um, and the business and, you know, helped to evangelize it to heights that I don't think anyone could imagine. And there's going to be lots of others. So I think, you know, that's where things are going. It requires, you know, re-engineering the ethos and values and being like truly community oriented, not like Facebook community and Web2 community oriented, but like truly, how do we actually not just show up and do these posts because they help us, but because they help our community? What other things can we do? How can we, how can we incentivize and excite people and really add value to them rather than just us? I think you're hitting on a really important point here because, you know, as someone who's been about mm, a year into NFTs and about a year and a half into crypto, and I own hundreds of NFTs, but the the ones that I'm most excited about are the ones that are going to probably be successful, I think, and the rest are probably going to just disappear. And I think so many marketers, if they treat this Web3 stuff as just another project, as a launch, and then it's done, but they don't treat it as like they're actually building something that's going to have value for everyone downstream, right? That's a very different mindset, isn't it? Completely. And that's probably why NFTs feel ridiculous to people. Like, I think it is ridiculous to launch something that's effectively 
a JPEG on the internet, collect a bunch of money on it because you can use your brand power that way. And then like wipe your hands clean and walk away with, you know, for $3 million on the balance sheet from your NFT drop. Like who cares? So what? That is dumb. It's really dumb. And people shouldn't buy those kinds of things and they shouldn't be sold those kinds of things, right? And and I think NFTs have the ability to be the greatest loyalty platform you've ever had, the future, you know, way that you communicate with people who are obsessed with your brand, the future of fandom in, of your brand and so many other things. You, you know, you, you just need to be able to like have a, a very long-term game plan with them. And, you know, that's sort of how I've, I've talked to a lot of big brands. Just you can launch an NFT. It doesn't mean you should. It's, you know, the launch of the NFT is really just the beginning, not the end. And so it feels like the end because getting one out there is not that simple. And, you know, like there's a lot of steps and a lot of learning curves if it's your first time, you know, launching one. But it is truly just the beginning and really the NFT projects and the digital assets that are launched that have a much longer view of things are, will be the ones that are, are, are much more successful, uh, at least the way, you know, sort of the NFT ecosystem looks today. Okay. I want to get back to Zed Run, which is that horse racing NFT project that you did with Stella Artois. Art, I don't even know how to say the whole... Artois. Artois. Yeah, there you go. It's French or something, right? I'm just, mm. or is it Italian? I don't know. Tell us a little bit about that project, like, like break it down. Like what, what did you do? What happened? How did you measure it? Yeah, sure. So, so it was in 2020, I'd written this thesis on, you know, Web3, Metaverse, NFTs, and crypto for brands. And part of that thesis was that brands will do well in Metaverse who, who parallel what they do well in reality. So like if you're not an artist, right, like because people can be very inclined to just like jump into art. But if you're not an art brand and that's just not what you do well in reality, it's not what your, your people expect of you, your fans expect of you, then like why are you going to just jump in and, and be an artist? It's crazy. And so if you abstract away the beer business what ABI, in my opinion, does and is does very well is bring people together to be entertained. They're one of the largest sponsors of sport, media, and entertainment in the world. And so in reality, Stella Artois is a pr- sponsor of premium sport. They sponsor things like Wimbledon, a very exclusive horse race in reality that's very premium. And so when I started looking, you know, at the at the landscape of different places we could play well, there was Zed Run, which was certainly one of the most premium sporting experiences in the metaverse. You can buy, trade, sell, own digital horses. And those horses can sometimes sell for as much as a car. And I know that sounds unfathomable, but truly... They all have their own DNA. So like Michael, yours might be really good at short track. My, my mind might be really good at long track. And you kind of have to play to figure out what your horse is good at. You can trace the DNA and lineage. You can, you know, you can breed them. And some of them, like I said, sell for the price of cars. So this is no question a very premium sporting, sporting platform. And so it felt like a really perfect place for Stella Artois to dip its toes and show up where we felt people would expect them to be. It wasn't a totally weird thing for Stella to show up at premium horse racing. And it certainly wasn't weird for them to show up at premium sport. Real quick question. So you found this NFT collection and were they already doing racing or at this point, I mean, like when you guys came on, were they already doing, was this NFT already, had it already launched? I mean, was it already out there and were people using the NFTs to do these races or did you guys come along early in the process? I'm curious where you found them. Yeah, look, uh, Zedrun, Zedrun has had, had had an amazing bunch of success. They had a great community around them. And that was one of the first questions we asked ourselves was, you know, 
I wanted to make sure that we weren't doing this just because we could, because we were Stella Artois, because, you know, people were willing to talk to us and willing to like explore, you know, with us what things could look like. I wanted to do them because it was the right thing to do for the Zed Run community who had spent a lot of time building up that brand, building up the community, building up the game. You know, we, Zed Run were, had, had loads of success in their own right. And they, and they still do great group, great community around them. And that was one of the most pleasurable things about, uh, about partnering and working together. They had uh, already released a bunch of, of horse NFTs and they had done one other partnership previously, you know, exploring how, how things could look. They had a big vision. They still have a big vision on what the future could look like of, of Zed Run with, uh, with brands. And if you think about what it's like to go to a horse race, that was a Zed Run vision. They wanted to replicate that in, in metaverse and digital worlds, but just make owning and racing a horse more accessible than it is in reality because um, it's pretty expensive to buy a horse. So yeah, we have we have a racetrack here in San Diego, so I know exactly. It's very poshy, you know. Um, yeah, and it's a lot of upkeep, a lot of effort. So they wanted to give peaks, you know, folks a you know a, a, a place to play here. So so yeah, it was it was already existing. We came in and we we put together uh, fifty bundles of digital horses that had a commemorative art piece with them and a Stella Artois skin. So like a jersey that the horses could wear in the game. So it was a bundle of three assets and we, you know, we auctioned those off over five days for folks. So people could customize their horse and race down the track in a Stella Artois skin. We also created in partnership with Zed, we replicated. So in, in two dimensional worlds, we had been building this campaign called Life Artois for a number of years, which was like a creamy dreamscape sort of world that was supposed to give the idea of like, you know, drinking a delightful beer in the Cote d'Azur and like a very relaxing sort of, you know, feel. And so we created a track in Zed Run that people could race their horses down that completely captured the, the Life Artois for the first time in 3D. And people could fully immerse themselves in a Life Artois for the very first time. So in addition to these um, NFT pieces, we we actually allowed people to race in um, in the Life Artois. You know, that was that was a heck of a lot of, of a lot of fun as well. Can you kind of describe, you know, for people that have never experienced what it's like to race this in this kind of virtual world or whatever, what does it look like? I mean, what perspective do you have? Are you are you watching as if you're in the audience or are you watching from the jockey's perspective on the horse or how does that work exactly? Yeah, there's a couple different views you can take uh, the, of you know the horses you know racing down the track. So kind of you know depends on on where you like to watch from. But uh, you know the important thing about horse racing is you got to know who crossed the finish line first. So you want to be able to see uh, see more than just your your own horse as well. Right. Okay. So so you guys partnered with Zed Run to do this, and um, people could obviously buy and trade the the assets that you partner with them on how did you as a brand determine whether or not quote unquote this partnership was good was smart you know like what how did you measure success yeah well look you know i wasn't looking for huge success when we originally started this i think you know it was so early there were just had not been too too many other movers at this point we really wanted to do is like prove out some of the thoughts and ideas in that thesis. So naively, I believed I was launching this partnership in a tiny corner of the internet where I could gain some data to validate and prove out this thesis that I had about where brands could play well and why it was going to be so interesting. And it absolutely exploded. So the success criteria was like, just genuinely, does this work or not? Could we be well received by crypto people? It's a totally new community for us. You know, is it a good fit? So the, again, was the thesis correct around premium sport and reality, premium sport and metaverse? Do you have to adapt that kind of thing? 
and it, it just exploded. Like it absolutely exploded. We got uh, hundreds of millions of media impressions within the first, the first couple of weeks. So tell me what that means. You mean like online media was talking all about how? Online, offline, like, I mean, shake a stick, you know, name a, name a journalist or a, name a publication that a brand would want to be in. And we were, we were there. And that was not planned. You didn't have your PR team, like do anything. It just somehow naturally organically happened. Is it because the community started talking about it or what do you think? Yeah. I mean, look, we'd released a press release, you know, because I think one of the things, the crazy things about these things, when you're, when you're working in a space that's cutting edge and new, like you always have this concern that no matter how good you think your idea is and how how strongly convicted you are in your thesis, there's always this worry that you're going to launch into crickets, right? And like, nobody's going to be there. No one's going to care. No one's going to show up. So no, we'd like release this press release, but we didn't think that, I didn't think that it was going to explode the way it did. It sure did. And I think really more importantly to me is that the crypto press really liked it, right? It was seen as this moment where a big Fortune 500 brand was taking crypto, metaverse, NFTs, Web3 really seriously, putting the space on the map, being gutsy, you know, going first, laying some groundwork for others, validating that this was real, not just a toy, that it could be a way to reach fans and consumers and enhance people's experience with brands. Like, you know, people really dug it. And um, and like, you know, the the crypto community and the Zedron community enjoying it and feeling like it added value to what they're doing into the space was like, you know, genuinely the most important and heartwarming and exciting thing about it. You know, but then of course, lots of other folks in traditional went, holy, that's, that's interesting too, because it hadn't been done before. And, you know, people could see quite evidently that this is where it's going. Fascinating. Speaking about where it's going, I would love you to kind of like look into the future, if you can, a couple of years and imagine... Where do you see it all going? I mean, like, where do you hope it's going to go? Where do you, I mean, you look at things that a lot of people listening don't look at. So where do you see this whole space heading? Whether people believe it or not, we are moving to a new phase of the internet that is more seismic than the shift to mobile. And I don't say that to be dramatic. It's just a fact. This is where the internet is moving and is where the internet is going. And so what does that mean? I mean, for me, I hope that the metaverse and becomes the blending of the digital and the physical in a way that allows us to live more seamlessly than we do today with technology. And what I mean by that is today, if you're on a hike and you need to know where you need to turn, you got to pull your phone out of your pocket, you got to put your face in it and, you know, be distracted and taken right out of a moment. That sucks. It's a horrible way to work with one of the most magical devices that we've ever had in our, in our history. My hope for Metaverse is that it allows us to enjoy a more spatial and immersive internet in a way that's more seamless than the one we have today that allows us to have allow, allows us to have technology be a value add rather than and an additive thing to our life rather than like a distracting thing in our life, which is sort of where I feel technology's taken us in a lot of ways today. And it's not all bad. Like I love tech and I and I love my phone and I love, you know, my tablet and you know, all these things, but there's no question I think it could be more seamless. So that's like my my hope for where it goes. I think my caution points are that, you know, a lot of one of the questions I get the most is doesn't metaverse come from dystopian fiction? And like, yeah, it does. And we are living in a really crazy time that's not too far from dystopia in a lot of ways. We're in the middle of a pandemic, huge disparity between the rich and the poor, very politically divided. I'm in the UK today. We've got 41 and a half degree weather. That's Celsius. That's like 100 and 
six degrees Fahrenheit. That's just unbelievable for this country. We don't get that kind of weather. There's no air conditioning. There's fires in Europe. There's forest fires in the U.S. We're in the middle of a climate crisis. And so the metaverse in science fiction is often written about as a place to escape reality to because the real world sucks. And the real world is the most precious thing we've got. Like this planet is amazing. There's so many cool things about it. And brands and big companies have more power and also therefore more responsibility than any of us to make sure that we're being really conscious about how we're building this thing, about who's collecting the data, about who's owning things, about the natural resources it takes to get there and how distracting it is, whether it is truly value add versus just terrible. And I want to build a metaverse that we choose to escape to and makes our lives better and not one that we have to escape to because we neglected so badly our physical reality that it's you know, completely on fire and a horrible place to be. And I think, you know, we are at a really critical time to be looking at that and looking at ourselves as corporate, you know, and our corporate responsibility to just make sure that we're making some strong and really bold choices that are going to be hard to make, but incredibly important. Lindsay, this has been really very helpful. If people want to discover more about you, do you have a favorite social platform? And also, you know, what website, if any, do you want to send everybody to if they want to learn more about you? Yeah, look, my favorite social platform is no question Twitter. I have a horrible last name that I locked in as my Twitter handle over a decade ago. It's the McInerney. I don't know. Look that one up because, you know, or, or yeah, we'll spell it for everybody who's listening. M-C-I-N-E-R-N-E-Y. And by the way, I just realized as we were talking that that's your last name and it's not Mac. I mean, Lindsay Mac is how everybody refers to you, but your real name is Lindsay McInerney. Is that correct? Yeah. Lindsay McInerney, like Burton and Ernie, but McInerney. And it's a heck of a one to pronounce. So it just was shortened a long time ago to Lindsay Mac. So Twitter, and we announced a couple of weeks ago the launch of Armored Kingdom, which is a sci-fi fantasy universe that's beginning with digital comic books on the blockchain. And armoredkingdom.com, spelled the American way, so no U in the armor for uh, the Canadians and UK folk listening. Armoredkingdom.com is where you can go to collect the first comic books in the series and unlock and understand the lore of, of the Armored Kingdom before we release a crypto-based card game. Was it Armor or Armored Kingdom? Armored armoredkingdom.com. And then is, if people want to check out the sixth wall, what's the URL on that? Oh, we've been focusing so hard on our projects. We've not built the .com for that one. But uh, if you're curious about sixth wall, get at me on LinkedIn or, uh, or Twitter. Happy to share what we're learning. Happy to share what we're doing. And would be really excited for anyone to, to join us in our journey and be part of the process. Lindsay Mack, thank you so much for answering all my questions and sharing your time with us today. I really appreciate it. Michael, thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been following you for a long time in the space. This is great. Hey, if you missed anything, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash C31. And if you're new to this show, be sure to follow us. And would you do me a favor? Let your friends know about this show. I'm at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Crypto Business Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day. And may Web3 continue to change your world. The Crypto Business Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. The information provided in the Crypto Business Podcast is provided solely for educational purposes. Do not treat what you hear as investment, trading, or financial advice. Do your own research. Want more good stuff? Sign up for our top-notch social marketing newsletter. We deliver it straight into your inbox three days a week. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates.